I forgot to plug in my headphones, so my speaker is just reading into my mic right now. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of Major Revisions. I'm John Walter and with me tonight are the usual suspects, Jeff Atkins, coming to us live from Pelson, Michigan, and Grace Wilkinson, coming from her normal spot. <laughs> <laughs> uh so how's everyone doing tonight well. pretty good so i am in pelston michigan at the university of michigan biological station if um i'm holding up your hand pretend it's lower michigan you're going to be pointing point at the bottom <laughs> of the fingernail on your middle finger so northern lower michigan um we are doing a manipulative experiment uh, based off a previous experiment that was based on accelerating succession, right? So there in forest, there's this um, idea of successional stages that, you know, there are trees that occur early in the forest age, you know, as a for- and then as they mature, you know, some of those species will drop off and be replaced by, you know, species that are more shade tolerant that will then become the canopy dominant species. And in some cases, there's even another third wave, right, of other mature trees that come in. So the original experiment that was done in 2009 was based on removing aspen and birch from the canopy here. So aspen and birch usually die at about 150 years old, 120. And that was what kind of came in after most of Michigan was clear cut in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So there's still some of those, those trees are kind of dying and moving on. But the question became, well, like, what are the forests going to look like in, you know, light of climate change? So what we can do is we can accelerate succession by girdling them. And so girdling a tree is when you take two chainsaw cuts around the base of the tree, and then you take a chisel or a pry bar, and you go in and knock out the bark and what's called the cambium, right? So if you think of the wood that you think of as the sapwood inside of a tree, there's a small thin layer that connects the bark to the sapwood called the cambium. That's basically the living tissue of the tree that transports water. If you separate the cambium from the tree and remove it, what you've done is cut off the entire top of the tree from the root system. And so you force it basically into senescence or death by old age very quickly, usually in a year or two, because it burns up everything. But the interesting aspect of this for, um, experiment was that you could kill over 60% of the trees in an area, but as a whole, that area would continue to grow. You know, there would be equal amounts of carbon sequestered, equal amounts of productivity, as if there was no disturbance. It was only until after you killed more than 60% of the trees that you actually saw declines in overall productivity. And so that was kind of a head scratcher, right? So part of what's going on is that all the resources that become available because of those trees that died, the trees around it take them up, or the microbes take them up. And you know it's a very tight cycle, and everything else becomes more efficient and grows stronger and faster. So that original experiment was just targeting those weird early successional species, the aspen and the birch. So the question became, well, is this idea of a threshold of like, say, 60-ish percent is that real or is that isolated to just being early successional species? So, you know, that original experiment was spread over 39 hectares and ended up killing 7,600 trees. This one is targeting not a species in particular, but instead different thresholds of disturbance. So there's a 45, uh, 65 and 85% mortality. And we're doing this over eight hectares, but we're killing close to 3,500 trees. And um, so when you're talking about like a plot and you have an 85% mortality, because the mortality threshold, that 85% is based on the amount of leaves that the tree produces, not the number of trees. In some cases, we're killing all but three trees. That. So it's a lot. (laughs) It's um, what we've been doing is the last we are in. We just finished day three. So we have one more plot to do tomorrow. We kill on average about 900 trees a day. And um, we have hired some sawyers who are, you know, very well-trained folks who work with chainsaws, and they come in and make two cuts, and then we come in with um, us and uh, some undergrads, and 
we hammer away. And I'm telling you, man, my wrist is killing me after a few hundred trees because I, I get the early shift. That is impressive. That is a really cool experiment. But I do have a follow-up question. So you've addressed why you're killing the trees, and that is some damn cool science. But I have to say in your Twitter post, why are you so happy about killing the trees? And th this comes from um, Robert wanted me to... to say he, he he exactly he read one of your posts and he looked at it and he's like i don't rip the shells off of turtles and say good luck fucker so like why are you so happy about killing all these trees well um that's only beech trees because beech trees are the only thing in this world that i'm allergic to and yeah and oh. spring up here is is the only time i've ever had allergies and it blew my mind and also beech trees are murder to try to girdle because like the <laughs> ambient sticks like plaque to your teeth or something right and so like a beech tree like even a small one takes like five minutes to do whereas an oak i can do in 10 seconds and an aspen i can do in like 15. okay so that's yeah, good to know it's so it's beach. more tree specific um, your but joy. it is like it's really cool to be part of like this will be a landmark experiment so can i ask a nerdy follow-up does your experiment treat trees of all different sizes and species as basically equal like you're just you know killing 45 percent of the leaves or 85 percent of the leaves or 65 percent of the leaves or are you targeting like different um different sizes of trees in different plots or is it well john that's an excellent question um to get incredibly wonky with you to give you the the overall design of this experiment there are four replicates of four plots each so 16 total plots um each of those 16 plots um ex unless it's a control control obviously doesn't get anything nothing happens to it uh it is split down the middle and so if it's a 45 percent disturbance um, or any of the disturbances, right? So if it's split down the middle, half of it will get what's called a bottom-up treatment. So that means we start, the trees are all organized in, in line by their contribution to leaf area. And um, so you, or by DBH rather, sorry. Um, so the, how big they are around. Starting at eight centimeters, that's the cutoff. So you, know, you start at eight centimeters and 45% of those trees will get killed. You know, you go up in DBH until you hit 45% threshold. So we'll start from the bottom and move up. And in that case, when you start at the bottom and move up, you end up killing a lot of trees mm -hmm. because those biggest trees are your largest contributors to leaf area because leaf area to diameter, that's an exponential relationship. As your DBH goes up linearly, your leaf area contribution goes up exponentially. So that's why in the 85% mortality, the bottom-up plots, there are some that only leave three or four trees out of 100 on a plot. Um, but then the other side gets what's called a top-down. And that one is the same thing, but we start at the largest tree and work downwards until we hit a threshold. Nice. I like it. So that way it's a really clean kind of parsimonious experiment where it's like one's a bottom-up, one's a top-down. These are the two disturbances. Because we had a big debate about this for, gosh, months about like, okay, do we want to do, you know, what do we want to mimic? And then think about it, like a lot of disturbances as far as forest, it's kind of difficult to really wrap your head around a directionality of that. Um, there's a paper I will be submitting in a week or so, hopefully, uh, <laughs> that addresses this topic. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it became a question, like, what's the most straightforward way to do this? And we ended up, you know, we had all kinds of crazy ideas. Like, what if we just start from the left and move to the right? Or what if we do a spatial aggregation algorithm where we look at like clumpiness or patchiness and just, you know, we kept coming back to like, what's the best way to do this? And this is just kind of the way that naturally made sense because we also want to continue in a way the trajectory from that first experiment, which is called facet, um, facet, like I said, did Aspen and Birch. But if you do a top down approach, you always get rid of the Aspen and Birch because the Aspen and Birch are the largest trees. So, you know, if we wanted to maintain that continuity with that experiment by also doing, a, you know, a threshold experiment, we were always going to have to kill things other than Aspen and Birch. So this became a way to make sure we included that, but also 
kept with you know the heuristic and the framework of this experiment now that said there there are ones that make me sad uh you know there it's birch trees actually in particular because i really like birch trees and they don't they don't exist where i live and i just you know they're just these gorgeous white you know landmarks in the forest and so it's always kind of the big birch that one makes me sad the beach yeah. i don't care i'd kill beach all day um, <laughs> There, there, there are two in particular, though. There was a white pine that we girdled Monday. That was massive. Um, and we're going to go core it, but it may be 150 or more years wow. old. It's big. Um, because the other thing is, like, you know, as an experiment, we don't just do what's in the plot. We have to actually do a buffer area around the plot to make sure that the treatment is you know homogenous so we actually end up extending outside of the plot um, a little bit you know to do like a five i think five meter buffer zone um so that's why it's everything in the plot plus a little bit more and so that's why you go up to about 3500 trees approximately and there's going to be an oak that we're going to kill tomorrow that's absolutely massive um that's probably that white pine and that oak are the biggest in the lot i don't have the oak measurement in front of me but i think it's like 60 something dbh which is a pretty big honking tree and it may also be 120 plus so basically this white pine and oak for whatever reason were salvaged from logging and just happened to survive um so yeah but i mean you know omelets eggs there's a metaphor there somewhere Oh. <laughs> to make the omelet, you have to get NSF approval, and then you girdle the eggs, and then you make sure. the omelet. Uh, that is exactly how I've heard it, actually. Yeah. Right there. Well... So, well, that's a good good sort of introduction in a way, though, in thinking about how the effect that individual plants and species can have on ecosystems. Can, can we um, just put it out there? Is it hobby or hobby? We have this long-running string of papers where we don't actually know how to pronounce the author's name properly. Independently from two other people, her name was mentioned as hobby today to me. Okay. Yeah. Oh man, I don't even. I can't even tell you what I. I'm all about that. It it sometimes feels like rereading Harry Potter for the first time. <laughs> like, is it Hermione? Is it Hermione? So we are talking about a Sarah Hobie paper today. <laughs> um, the 1992 review in Tree, right? Um, effects of plant species on nutrient cycling. And Tree is not because it. this is a paper about, say, trees or other plants, but that's trends <laughs> in ecology. Do you think they forced that acronym or they realized it afterwards and got all pumped? They had to force it because it's TR. It's, the TR is from trends. Never mind. Yeah, they definitely forced it. I I read I read this a week ago, so now I got to like remember it because right before the podcast, I was in Sheboygan, Walmart, trying to buy safety glasses because some people had lost their safety glasses, and it took forty five minutes to get a P card. And then on my way in here, I also got pulled by a Michigan State trooper because um, I was going like sixty nine and a fifty five or something. But he gave me a warning. He was really cool. Um, props to that dude because literally everyone drives that fast up here. Okay, so. Um, this is a digging in my mind to read this. I'm going to edit out this part where I'm talking where it doesn't sound like I'm doing this. Um, so a lot of this is like a comparison. Uh, it's a review paper based on from her dissertation, I believe, actually, which is very daunting to think about that this was part of her dissertation. It's like, Jesus, I've done nothing with my life. Um, so some people set a high bar, right? Um so a lot of this is talking about nutrient-poor systems and how plants kind of grow slowly and focus on, you know, efficient uses of nutrients in that system. And that's how, you know, kind of those plants 
thrive. And in that case, they produce litter that will tend to decompose very slowly. And in that case, kind of deter herbivores from that system, right? And so in contrast to that, you know, a nutrient rich system is going to be a system where things are kind of going to grow, you know, grow very rapidly. The litter is going to tend to be very degradable. It's going to be high in nutrient content. And you're going to tend to see, you know, high rates of herbivory. So everything's going to come in and eat that system. And you're also going to see, you know, nutrient cycling that system. So how nutrients move around is going to be more rapid and more quickly, you know, through that system. And in this, she, um, oh, somebody was typing something and I was trying to read what it was in case it was something I needed to read. Um, so she kind of goes through the system and then talks, you know, also introduces, you know, litter and talking about C to N ratio. So how much, you know, carbon to nitrogen is in a system, which, you know, the, the amount of carbon to nitrogen within litter, also the amount of lignin. So lignin is that, you know, really highly recalcitrant, hard to break down, uh, you know, it's not really, I guess it's a molecule, but it's a group of different things, you know, that's, um, you know, the lignin to nitrogen ratio also determines how easily something decomposes. So she kind of goes through, just does like a killer, like, you know, top level kind of, hardcore introduction into this like how that works in a system and how that plays into you know nutrient cycling how nutrients move around starting from that supply point from the litter and then goes on to even talk about rhizosphere effects which honestly i didn't realize that rhizosphere work was this mature in the early 90s um maybe it's just because like i don't really have a strong background in that but like the understanding here is far beyond what I thought it was kind of at that point. So it's kind of interesting to go back and I think part of the reason why we read a lot of these, you know, older papers to kind of frame how long some of this stuff has been in, you know, kind of the field. But yeah, so it's just kind of, it's a, dude, it's a super tight, you know, gosh, it's four pages and just nails like the basis of a lot of like the, the you know, how nutrients move through ecosystems. Mm. And it's like a cornerstone piece of like, you know, ecosystem science. And so what's weird is I don't think I've ever read this paper, but I've read like all the stuff that's come after it. And so it was really good for me to kind of go back and read this one. And, you know, yeah. But as non-plant people, let me ask y'all, what was your kind of main takeaways? Uh, well, definitely that I'm reminded that when I teach stoichiometry and aquatic ecology next semester, I'm going to make the students read this paper. Um, but yeah, I guess the stoichiometric parts were what really stuck out to me. Um, but in particular, so this is a naive question. And, and I, everyone feel free to judge me. A carbon and nitrogen ratio is super important. Um, and clearly have been shown to correlate and control lots of processes and things. But why is like the phosphorus never considered? I think it's literally just more expensive to do. Also, like, um, okay, you know, also from like the land perspective, like literally everywhere is phosphorus limited. So. Wait, but hold on. If everything's phosphorus limited, wouldn't we want to measure it? It's kind of always going to be phosphorus limited, though. Well, phosphorus is yeah. hard to get. Phosphorus has no gaseous component. The amount that is in the atmosphere, the amount that is in the system, is what's in the system. And indeed, and a lot of that tends to be leaving the system and, and coming into systems like mine. Um, and and that is a problem, right? And and we don't have even like on the planet enough phosphorus um that we should do a whole episode on phosphorus this is convincing me because this would be really cool but um okay you you keep talking i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna look up the love it paper from like 1977 that has the phosphorus okay. cycle thing in it keep going and and i think so i i my senses is in that in some ways that um the set of, sorry i was gonna say the sediments the soils Showing my bias. Um, <laughs> have a lot of phosphorus in them. Or, I mean, they can also be phosphorus poor. You can have phosphorus poor soils. But that's an opportunity for things like plants that are growing in those soils to um, potentially, either through microbes or, or other mechanisms, right, to get some of that phosphorus. 
Like, that's the place it's hanging out. In those soils. So that would make sense to some degree. See, I told you this was a naive question, and I don't have my thinking hat on right now. And so I'm not making a very articulate argument, but... I, I, I didn't mean to detract from this awesome paper. I'm not detracting from it. I'm just asking this question because the C to N. But why not C to N to P? Okay, so there's literally a Peter Vitusik article from like 2010 where the basic premise is we don't really talk about phosphorus very much <laughs> in terrestrial systems. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you bring up a point, but I think it's just... I don't know, we need someone obviously more educated in, in mineral cycling than, than me, but it's we always measure carbon and nitrogen because it has, you know, gaseous components to it. And phosphorus, I think, is just kind of assumed to be limiting, but also assumed to be a tight system that, you know, the only... You correct me on this if I'm wrong on this, Grace, but, like, the only way that you get phosphorus, like, runoff is either through like some type of severe disturbance like or clear even a clear cut the clear cut like most of the above ground biomass is going to contain the phosphorus it's going to be removed or it's like exogenous inputs like 70s and you know the 1970s and laundry detergent like it's coming from like people in some way right yeah once it gets in there then it gets stored in the sediments of aquatic ecosystems and has internal cycling like this internal phosphorus release but absolutely it came exogenously to begin with even from dust in some systems, dust can be a significant source. Oh yeah, yeah, of phosphorus. absolutely. You have like phosphorus deposition from like the Sahara that gets dumped over the Yucatan. Uh, shout out my old office mate Rishi. Um, uh, literally, <laughs> the only reason I know that. And like, yeah, but that's otherwise like the phosphorus you have in a natural system. What's there is there. Yeah, it has a, a very very long regeneration time, which is why as a population we're screwed. Yeah, isn't there, like, crazy estimates that all the phosphorus will be at the bottom of the ocean within 30 to 60 years? It will certainly be mined out of, but the mineable sources are going to be gone in that amount of time. Hell Absolutely. Yeah. This is why we all need to remain friends with Morocco from a geopolitical standpoint. You know, so, all right, back up for <laughs> No, no, this is a Sorry. fascinating... St- <laughs> I did the not m- mean to Moroccan derail phosphorus, phosphorus mines, though, John, is fascinating, but go ahead. No, they are fascinating. I didn't know there Dude, were phosphorus yeah. mines in Morocco. But, like, I, all right, I'm still stuck on this limiting nutrient thing. And maybe maybe my understanding of limiting nutrients is pretty messed up because I think about numbers of animals. Um, and plants, too. But mostly I just think about numbers of things and, you know, who cares what they actually are and what they're made of. Um, which... Yeah. Which is phosphorus and nitrogen Ecological and carbon. widgets. Um, all right. But if if phosphorus yeah. is the limiting thing, and it's limiting everywhere, then how come adding nitrogen makes stuff grow? It's also nitrogen limited? Because organisms also require nitrogen. So it must not be as limiting in terrestrial systems. I mean, certainly, so, like, I think about algae and, and, like, the red field ratio, right? So, 16 nitrogens to 1 phosphorus. You don't need nearly as much phosphorus in your life as you need nitrogen. So, that means there's the opportunity for nitrogen to become pretty limiting. Now, nitrogen is in a gaseous form, right? So, um, many organisms have evolved ways of getting that nitrogen, even if it's very energetically costly, like nitrogen fixation, Right. Mm-hmm. To alleviate that, you still need a bunch more nitrogen. So even at the end of the day, if you're that microbe chomping on things, trying to get at, right, like you're going to be releasing, well, you might be releasing excess nitrogen if you don't No, it. no, because it's, there's, just there's. carbon and decomposing. Yeah, we are, because I'm trying to, I'm having flashbacks to comps now. Um, I don't know. Is phosphorus so, is limiting in the terrestrial so biosphere? Leap, is we, this is cemented to me. We are definitely doing you know a phosphorus about? episode now. Liebig's law of the... Yeah, Liebig's. Or Liebig's. Liebig's. Law of the limiting. Phosphorus, 
Phosphorus is not limiting only because nitrogen is more limiting. So the law of the minimum is basically like the thing that is the most or that you have the least of that you, I don't know how to explain it, but basically like you run out of nitrogen before you run out of phosphorus. But so there is a lot of this idea that's come out in the last decade or so that like, well, are sure. terrestrial systems really phosphorus limited? And then I, I actually kind of take a little bit of this to task because the only reason we're thinking they're phosphorus limited is that we've added so much goddamn nitrogen to the environment that we're entering phosphorus limitation. Because it starts to look like, well, now phosphorus is the limiting thing. Well, phosphorus is only limiting because we've added so much nitrogen that we've kind of passed that. And we can't use the nitrogen because now we're running out of phosphorus. But, you know, pre-anthropogenic disturbance, climate change, typically, yes, phosphorus is limiting, but it's only limiting because nitrogen is also limiting. Like, you have to have... Both, all of them based on the stoichiometry. You need less phosphorus than you need nitrogen. But the P in ATP is phosphorus. So like you you need that. But also like there's other weird things like Australia is limited by a lack of molybdenum. You don't need very much of it, but they ain't got any of it. Yeah. So like if you in a system that's nitrogen limited, if you add a bunch of phosphorus, nothing will happen. That's why fertilizer always has, you know, typical fertilizer is NPK. So it has nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. If you add all of those in a you know, particular ratio, then you're going to see growth. Um, but if you add just a bunch of phosphorus to a nitrogen-limited system, nothing really substantial is going to happen. If you add nitrogen and phosphorus, then you're going to see increased growth. So it's kind of just like nitrogen is more limiting than phosphorus, but phosphorus is also limiting. Sure. Well, like in the iron, or iron in the ocean, right? The high nutrient, low chlorophyll areas. The, the inland water aquatic side of things, there has also been this huge debate and discussion. And in fact, there was, uh, if you all have the opportunity, go watch um, David Schindler's talk, the shootout at the NP Corral that he gave in Granada in 2015. There was lots of debate about whether inland systems are phosphorus or nitrogen limited, but it turns out we should probably just manage for both. And they play different roles and can be diff limiting at different times, for, as Jeff said. Exactly. So <laughs> maybe we don't need to be in two camps and we could care about both. Right. That's why, you know, we, we talk about you know, where, where this paper has gone, you know, kind of since then, that's why we've moved into this idea of coupled biogeochemical cycles. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these two cycles are coupled in a way, right? Like one feeds into the other and contributes to that. And that's kind of the, you know, the maturation of where thought is, you know, since this paper and moving forward. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So thank you. You've no, no, satisfied <laughs> my naive question about why don't we talk about C to N to P. C to N, no, <laughs> I didn't mean to get us on like a 10 minute derailment. It took me 10 minutes to jog my memory to remember like what the actual reason was. <laughs> um, but this paper. Yes. Despite the lack of discussion of phosphorus, still amazing. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not more judgmental than it was. This I actually remember reading this paper as an undergrad, and it was hugely formative in my understanding of how nutrients and ecosystems work. Okay. So, so, so no this paper at all. divides the world into two, in a way, which I'm, I'm never totally comfortable with. Because um, I think it's, it's you know, binary thinking, I think is, is often just a, a cheap... It can be a starting point, right, which, which I think this is, because I don't think this is meant to be this way. But I think, you know, we get too stuck in this idea of the binary thought, like left brain versus right brain, right, which is not a thing, you know, or A-type personalities, B-type personalities. Like, life is not a binary. Mm -hmm. You're not a fast thinker or a slow thinker. There's all kinds of gradients. And so I think the, the potential, one of the potential issues of this paper is how, you know, she divides the world into low nutrient systems versus high nutrient systems. And so there's no real consideration of a gradient. So I think, you know, the best way to kind of read this is more of like that starting point kind of heuristic, you know, thinking about, you know, the simple model. This is the simple model for these systems. There's a low and there's a high. 
and this is approximately how low and high work. And once you have the understanding of that, then we can start building in the subtleties and then kind of understand how mm. things you know, kind of work, right? Like, the world is not a tropical rainforest or a tundra, right? There's all kinds of the stuff in the middle. And so this, I think, lays out a really good framework for understanding those two extremes. This is how a low nutrient system works. Right. These things are very tightly coupled. Plants have to be very efficient because they can't afford to lose anything. Whereas in, you know, a high nutrient system, you know, it can live loose, free and wild. Right. Um, So this does a really good job of kind of framing those two ends and creating the simple model for nutrient cycling for, I think, people to build off of. But that's, you know, kind of the advantage to this, I think. So is it possible to look at this sort of, think about this on a gradient of like you know maybe you're not talking about like a tropical forest versus the tundra but you're talking about like two systems that are in absolute terms relatively close to one another one still has you know higher productivity than the other but they're not that different will you still see more of those like sort of like fast um fast plant growth um rapid nutrient cycling in the higher productivity system versus the slightly lower product productivity system or does it break down when you're not looking at at such extremes let me check one thing to make sure she says or does not say this before i answer that because um, I have a thought, but I want to make sure she's talking about this. Um, yeah. So to answer your question, because they're from this, you know, like productivity doesn't necessarily mean or does not necessarily correlate to low or high nutrients ecosystems because a, typically a tropical rainforest is very highly productive. But that does not mean that it is nutrient rich because one of the aspects about, you know, typically soils and a lot of um, rainforest, these highly leached soils are very nutrient poor. The reason being that nutrient cycling is actually very fast and very efficient. So it can be low nutrient, but be relatively highly productive. That's where the gradient thing kind of comes in, right? You know, if it's a very highly, super highly productive rainforest, it's going to be high in nutrients but it's going to be very tightly coupled and everything's going to have to be very efficient so i think that's kind of where in a way the system breaks down and she you know she says that she's talking about highly you know leached rain tropical systems you know when she's talking about low nutrient systems you know they can be very productive but be low nutrient in a sense um because it's because i think it becomes subtle thinking about nutrients as an amount versus availability you can have a big amount but if it's not available, then it's not really a high nutrient system, right? Because it's a very tightly coupled system. Anything that dies in a rainforest, you know, cycling is so fast and so efficient, it's immediately, you know, reabsorbed and it goes somewhere else quickly. Decomposition is super fast. Um, it's not, which is weird because then like, you know, like this, I feel like rainforests are the weird thing that kind of break this down. Or maybe I'm just thinking of it the wrong way. But, you know, I think of like the really high nutrient systems in particular are like abandoned fields, um, you know, former agriculture areas that are just like replete with excess amounts of um, you know, nutrients or areas that are in high deposition areas, particularly downwind from, uh, you know, coal power or you know, power plants or whatnot. Right. That are dropping tons of nitrogen everywhere. Like those can be very nutrient poor or nutrient rich systems. So. I think it it's not a hard and fast relationship, honestly. Or maybe that's a controversial point on my end. I don't know. <laughs> so. Yeah, I can't tell you you're wrong. So, If I say something <laughs> wrong, please correct me. I mean, I don't know everything. Well, so John, you had some questions that you'd written down after you had thoughtly, thoughtfully read this piece. Wait yeah. for your homework. So um, one question that I had was about whether this principle holds for aquatic systems. Um, For example, like, are there analogous slow-growing versus fast-growing phytoplankton? Oh, jeepers. Yeah, that's a really good question, and I am not, would not 
count myself as a, a person who knows a lot about phytoplankton ecology, um, as I tend to see them as these packets of carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus that are feeding the rest of the food web. Um, but I believe there definitely are. I'm not sure if it's directly analogous. So thinking about how fast that nutrient cycling is, that was actually in, in as Jeff was sitting there, I was scribbling down ideas and like, I have to look this up. Um, right. Cause especially it's summertime. So you're just thinking like, Hmm, that's interesting. I need to look this up if someone's done this. Otherwise I'm going to write a grant. Um, because you make bold plans in May and then they come crashing down by August, right? And <laughs> You're lucky if you make it to August. Right. Um, um, so, you know, that's a really good question. Um, but I think that certainly there are different rates or how quickly cycling. So I, 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 coming back to phosphorus, I'm sorry, I'm a broken <laughs> record today. Um, but we think about how, I'm not sure in terms of individual species, but in, um, when nutrients are very scarce, particularly phosphorus, there are phosphorus regeneration rates or like the amount of time it takes a phosphorus, you know, molecule, the average time it spends not in an algal cell or a microbial cell um, in lakes that are measured on the order of minutes. Um, at the whole ecosystem level. And sometimes we obviously when nutrients are very replete, like here in Iowa, we measure dissolved phosphorus and it's in organic form just hanging out in the lake at concentrations <laughs> that continually make me think the decimal place is in the wrong place. So there, <laughs> there's certainly a difference in the, in the reaction. Um, but one thing in particular um, in this paper that was lightly touched on was about the herbivores. And I, I tend to think about those phytoplankton and what's growing and whatnot also in their context of the food web that they're in and how much grazing is happening and how that influences the nutrient cycling as well. And certainly the communities and the identity of the grazers there um, can play a large role in that nutrient cycling. Nice. And, and yeah, we actually just had a paper on that come out. We, my postdoc, Eric Moody, led it. So that can definitely influence that. Um, so the species at, at the level that I'm most familiar with them in aquatic ecosystems, thinking about zooplankton, definitely play a role there in that nutrient cycling and how fast it's happening. Cool. So that actually, your answer kind of relates to my other question. Yeah. Um, although I had it more for plants than for phytoplankton. Um, but like how plastic are growth rates um, and related traits? Like if you put clones in a nutrient poor versus a nutrient rich environment, will these sort of patterns of uh, or rates of um, nutrient cycling play out in a similar way or do you need like different genetic lineages and and um really like different um genetic traits to make these patterns yeah, work so jeff did you have an answer on the plant side of things i have an answer on the aquatic side of things but generally Speaking, I want to make sure I leave some caveats for things like red maple and some other trees. And I don't know much about herbaceous plants, really. Um, they have fairly well-defined ranges that are fairly limited in their efficiencies, um, generally. Um, uh, that said, I'm not completely familiar with a lot of that transplant work. But a lot of those efficiencies... Um, or use efficiencies for various nutrients are fairly well constrained. So, you know, they, which is, you know, I think she, she mentions on this later that plants typically tend to try to drive their environment to be more like the environment that they want. Right? You know, a, a coniferous forest or like a hemlock forest makes the hemlock forest more suitable for hemlock and less suitable for other things by throwing down really lousy litter that acidifies the soil that makes it more hospitable like plants create the environment that they want um so that said they tend to like that defined range but there are you know uh plants that that, that are more plastic in that sense um one of the fun one is is lettuce actually uh, lettuce is one of the few plants that can do what's called luxury consumption which is where it takes up excess nitrogen and stores it in plants, you know, within cells. That's why if you have a garden and you over fertilize your lettuce, it'll taste like shit. 
is you're basically just tasting the nitrogen. Yeah, you have to be very careful with how you... Yeah, basically, yeah. There you go. I did urea, not know that. to be more specific. No, I'm just kidding. I, I don't remember well, the actual... Well, it tastes like urine. Oh, <laughs> if you had no, no judgment here. But yeah, it's, you know, the nitrogen, whatever compound it's, it's created. Sorry, not, part, I, I, I have not tasted no urine that but, wasn't speaking yeah. from experience. Yeah. Is that, hold on, is that why um, people like doing lettuces and hydroponics? Because right. it's really easy to control the specific... Uh, concentrations of nutrients. I wouldn't say specifically. I think that's just a good side effect of it. All right. uh, but yeah, you can, um, you know, lettuce and some greens can do luxury consumption. And um, why that's good for the plant, if you want to eat it, that's not good for yeah. taste. Also, like gra- how grasses can store salt. That's a defense mechanism. Um, you know, grasses will store salt and sand in them and that's why you can't eat a lot of grass well um because it will be bad for you but (laughs) mainly because it stores a lot of sand and salt like actually in the plant cells to deter herbivory um but you know as far as like generally they're pretty well constrained that said there's always room but grace yeah, no, I, I think it kind of plays into that, this idea of the stoichiometric knife edge, right? That you can have like nutrients and ratios that are, it's, it's too much, but you can also have too little and that can be harmful to the organism. So while there's some plasticity, it, it is definitely constrained, I think, like Jeff was saying. Um, and at least, so um, I, again, Eric Moody has, has been leading some work here recently doing some of those sort of common garden experiments with Daphnia and, and thinking about um, the models predict that Daphnia shouldn't live at high phosphorus concentrations. And yet we find them there in our lakes. So the question was like, well, how the heck did that happen? Why are the models wrong? And, and part of that actually he's found is that there's some really rapid Daphnia evolution in their populations um, at a, at a specific loci. Um, I know I sound like a real biologist when I talk about his work Um, and um, that actually has a whole ecosystem (laughs) effect on the amount of algae that those grazers are consuming and how well they can control algal populations, which is pretty cool. So their surroundings or their food really influence that. In other words, more phosphorus, the Daphnia don't eat as much. They're lazy Daphnia. So algae can grow even more and enjoy that extra phosphorus. So hypeotrophic lakes feedback. It's just like what you're saying with the hemlocks, right? Like feedback to become even more hypereutrophic and filled with algae and pea soup green and gross. So sort of the same thing. Can you can you make one of those like genetic um, uh, supercomputer things where you store like an episode of our podcast into the DNA of the Daphnia and then release it into the lake? I don't know how much that costs, but I think it's worth it. Only if you have, they have the right genes. That's a broader impact. <laughs> that's right. Actually, that's going to be our next grant. We're going to do CRISPR for Daphnia. <laughs> that actually would be amazing. I, I kind of want to write that grant. Absolutely. (laughs) 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 So, Jeff, as someone um, who thinks, is active in this field, thinks a lot about it, right? I think like terrestrial ecosystems and whatnot. What's, what has been sort of a lasting impact of this paper from your perspective? I think this and like I said, you know, admittedly, I had never actually read this one until you had suggested it. And I had read, you know, kind of follow up work and work based on this, but um, wish I would have read this for, I don't know why I keep constantly finding papers that I feel like I should have read, but there's so much literature. Oh my God. You know, I really appreciate the 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 kind of hardcore chemistry background on this. I guess it's not really hardcore, but it's really grounded in like the fundamentals, like you said, stoichiometry and kind of how that dictates, you know, things in an ecosystem. Understanding, you know, it's not just the availability; it's also, 
you know, maybe what form that it comes in or where is it stored in the system? You know, how does it kind of move through that system? And also, like, what are the things that affect, you know, how those various nutrients move around in, in kind of a system? So I really appreciate that from, like, an ecosystem standpoint. Um, you know, because, like, contrary to John, like, John counts animals, but you know, I tend to count molecules. Um, it's kind of like thinking about things in that perspective and, you know, building on a lot of the fundamental, you know, Borman, Lincoln's, Odom kind of ecosystem ecology, hardcore molecule kind of work. And, and I think it's also just thinking about, you know, there's also that, but there's also the effect of, you know, well, how does the rhizosphere, how does like mycorrhizae and, you know, these plant, um, bacteria fungi relationships like also kind of change things right so it's thinking about it from like a whole perspective like a truly kind of ecosystem perspective um, you know how does herbivores and disturbance kind of come into the system and kind of move those things around so i think it's just a really it's a really good you know kind of tight little introduction and i think something that should be like the basis of like a, a introductory terrestrial ecology class i'm kind of surprised how he didn't have us read this paper in that class honestly I couldn't tell you. Probably could have told you on comps day. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of wondering if we were supposed to, so I'm, I'm, um, it's good to hear you both say that we didn't, <laughs> and I just didn't do it. <laughs> so. Another thing that I think that has given this paper, you ever heard the phrase, like, the paper has legs? Like, it's one of those papers that, like, keeps going and going and going, and that's why it has a crazy amount of citations, is, um... I think how well she frames the conclusions and kind of the forward looking things. So she's talking a lot about how ecosystem perturbations, as far as like climate warming and land change or how are you going to, you know, increase rates of extinction and invasion in systems, but also that's going to have kind of a cascade effect on nutrient cycling. Like the, again, going back to this being a dissertation chapter, basically the thought it's yeah it's on point and it's concise and it's like this is what we should maybe consider about perturbations and disturbance this is what we should consider about climate warmings this is kind of the cascade of this also this is how models deal with this and this is where models fall short on this so it's like dearly declaring like, these are the potential problems also these are the potential areas where there is concern and uncertainty that we should kind of focus more generally so it's, dude it's yeah <laughs> this is one of the best like i think conclusion sections to a paper, particularly one that's like a review and very short, um, you know, from this era of science, I think is that you can possibly get. So I really like that. And it's just because it, it takes it out. Like she's defined this very, she's built it down. Right. And then told you, this is my big picture thing. This is how these individual components thinking about litter, stoichiometry, my heuristic, as far as like low versus high nutrient systems, detailed all that and then like brings it back in like two or three paragraphs to like the big picture science super well like super well so i think it's worth seeing or just worth reading just for that like even if this is not you know your particular field i think it's it's a really good tight review it's just how to do that and you know and it's not surprising that well-written papers are the ones that have legs and stand the test of time but this is an excellent example of that i agree with you yeah. And extremely accessible. Like I said, I think my aquatic ecology students are going to read this next year. <laughs> you know, I, I finally picked up, uh, thanks to my friend Ellen, gave me a copy of the Josh Simmel writing book. And so I've been reading it and um, uh, he makes uh, some similar points to that about the well-written papers being the ones that, you know, the ones that kind of kind of cut through. Um, interesting book. I don't know. Have you all read that? Yeah, we could um, we could do a, a debate between that and the Stephen Hurd book sometime. Would be interesting. Absolutely. Although one one plus, plug, I will say at least for the Schimmel book, I have not read the yeah, Hurd book, so I definitely. don't know. But uh, the nice thing about the Schimmel book is it's not necessarily about how to write, but it's how to write better. So it's more about honing the craft than learning the craft, which I appreciate. I think they both are. One, the herd is more uh, philosophical, and Schimmel is much more of like, this is what you got to do. <laughs> These are the things. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. So. I think that's real. Hey. hey, before we close out, one thing that I want to say, I think I saw some Twitter gossip that Hope Jaren might be writing a new book. 
I did, yeah, she, yeah. That is yeah. Real. All right, we're going to have to bring back Book Club pretty soon. Heck yeah, and I'll read all of it this time and remember all of it. <laughs> that's the that's the episode I've gotten the most emails about. <laughs> no, they're like, way? did you even read the book, Jeff? <laughs> I have a terrible memory. I'm sorry. How did you forget? I'm sorry. It's <laughs> the most controversial. Alas. Oh. Well, we'll have you read the next one. And we will read another paper in our classic paper series, right? Yeah. Um, I don't think we have one um, on the docket, but I think it's up to John or I to pick, and we can go from there. Um, and then we also have listener recommended papers on the horizon too including the river continuum concept and another one that escapes my mind and then we also um i still need to tally the winner of the march mammal madness thing and see what that person's going to pick for a podcast as well but and apparently phosphorus is coming on the horizon too so yeah oh heck yes cool um i was going to tell you about uh, motivated acronyms so the this experiment has been called forte yes so the forest resilience and threshold experiment the o is forced in there i know from forest um <laughs> but i know y'all both hate acronyms have we had other ones i wanted to, yeah, i don't well, hate them they just need to be but, clever and that's a pretty good one yeah it that's good to hear it that way. I don't know why in the hashtag I've been seeing it as the Ford experiment. So now I will say Forte in my head when I read your tweets. Yeah, we it just looked weird to have the two E's, but yeah, it's Forte experiment, and then the E works for both letters. But so you can type in F O R T E experiment or F O R T experiment, and you can see a bunch of the things, including my power ranking of trees that are most difficult to kill. Um, <laughs> good uh, tweets. Really is beach, and then everything else is a piece of cake. And then uh, a bunch of videos and some other stuff that I'll throw up as well. And so it's been good. You know, Twitter has already actually netted us uh, people who have independently emailed us wanting to collaborate on the project. So, again, Twitter for the win. And with that, thank you for listening. You can find our podcast on where most major podcasts are held, including iTunes, the Google Play, Stitcher, and also Spotify. And you can email us at majorrevisionshow at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at major underscore revisions. And, of course, find us on the web at majorrevisionshow.com or majorrevisionspodcast.com. We bought two because we're fancy AF. And with that, thank you all. Have a wonderful day.